Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Shane Jacobson is one of Australia's most beloved actors, comedians and personalities. I asked him if he would be my very first Laughaholics guest because, well, I knew it would be fun for both of us and a gentle entree into this new frontier for me. I knew Shane would be his usual, generous, warm and hilarious self. And while Shane is always authentic, there's so much more to him than what we see on screen. I loved this chat with Shane and I know you will too. Hi, um, my name's Shane Jacobson and I'm a laughaholic. So Teddy talks with a rhythm and you don't really notice it until I point it out. If he was to count to ten, it'd be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine and ten. Laughaholics, celebrating laughter. Recording in progress. You know what, Shane? <laughs> I'm not only, I'm, you know, I've been very excited about talking to you, but I, because we haven't seen each other for so long. So long. And it feels like five minutes. And, uh, but I, I wanted to, off the bat, because people wouldn't know how we know each other. And I'm sure my version of how we met is similar to how your version. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to go down memory lane and see if you could recount how we met for the very first time long before you were a superstar. Yeah, it was at the Birdman rally. I was dressed as Batman, you turned up as Robin, and we just jumped (laughs) off that. No, no, it wasn't. (laughs) And there's half the audience already going, what the hell is the Birdman rally? And they've probably never even heard of Moomba. Well, BC, before COVID. Before COVID. We, We, it was at an event. It was a speaking event. At the time, we were both with the same sort of speaking agency and it might still be, and we still do stuff for them. So Saxton's and we're at an event and I, I'm sure it was at the Sofitel. Was it, it, am I, am I you're yeah. nodding? So I'm, I'm, yep. I'm like, they're right. And we met and let's be honest, it was it was never going to not work. You know, there's. <laughs> but what was, can you remember what I was doing and what you were doing? You were emceeing. You were in the audience. I was in the audience. Get to me to the next bit because you were emceeing. <laughs> Well, it was it was a dinner for clients of Saxon Speakers. It was That's a special right. a special dinner for special clients. It was yes. very exclusive. There was probably I don't know maybe fifty or sixty people in it was one the of the showcase. They called it the showcase. Yeah, didn't they? and it was up you know up in maybe the thirty fifth floor or the yeah. atrium somewhere near there. And I was singing with my band as well. You were. I was, and you were in the audience and I remember you just kept giving me curry all night. You were just you were just this heckler. And I and I was I thought you were hilarious. But the thing that I remember the most is <laughs> that I said to you, oh, and you're wearing pinky rings. I mean they're just disgusting. If there's anything that's gonna put a woman off a man, it's pinky rings. And do you remember what you did? No. You held up your two pinky rings and said something along the lines of well, thank you very much, but they belong to my grandfather and he died last week. Thank you oh. very much. <laughs> oh, God, isn't that terrible? Because that's a terrible. lie. It was te- I know. I knew it was a lie. <laughs> but if we fast forward to the next time we met, Kenny had been released. You're fabulous. So those of you who don't know, who haven't seen Kenny, you have to see Kenny because, I mean, Shane Jacobson is known for many, many things, but I really feel Kenny 
brought you to the world. Yeah, um, it did. It, it really did. did. And yeah. written by Shane and his brother Clayton, the Clayton brothers, uh, your dad was in the movie playing your dad. And I told you the day I met you when, when you came into what, what was then Mix FM. Yeah. Um, and I was working with Tim Smith and you came in in character and, uh, and I said to you in the interview, this film made me cry but in the really the best way because I felt that you, you had created a character in Kenny who was so wonderfully lovable and authentic but mm. there was this one moment when, when he, the little boy had gone missing and found him and I was just sobbing, just sobbing because, because the whole thing with acting, as you know, you're not there to be liked, you're there to be believed. And yeah. um, I just, you know, I've seen Kenny, I don't know, maybe half a dozen, ten times. I, it's my go-to. I just love it. And But you came into the studios and we did this incredible interview yeah, and we were all crying, laughing, crying, laughing. And, you know, the mics went off and we were standing there, you and me and Tim Smith, and then you held up these fingers with the pinky rings and I just went, oh, my God, because it had, I had no idea. And you'd completely sucked me in because you told Tim that we'd met earlier and I couldn't yeah. remember. But, you know, I just wanted, you know, the, I just, I wanted to thank you for giving me some of the biggest laughs I've ever had because you have such extraordinary talent. And oh, no, thank you. Oh, but, don't, but don't forget that we, we laugh a lot. There isn't great sports and, you know, athletes. I'm not for a moment about to say we're athletes, but oh, we are. When, you watch, when, you watch, <laughs> when you watch people tennis, you know, you watch tennis players play together, the reason the game is so exciting is because the, the two people that are there are matched. Like it's a perfect match. So, therefore, you've got a great match you're about to watch. Like that ball is going to go back and forth across the net really fast. That's right. You know what I mean? When two of the top netball teams get together, I mean, that's going to be an exciting game because they're all there for the same reason. It's going to be one for one, the skill set if it's the finals, and it's exciting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then when you meet, you and me are like that. I know it's a weird analogy, but you get together and you meet someone, let's be honest, our energy level is, I mean, if we were cars, we'd be drag cars. I mean, loud, <laughs> fast, like... And you and me are like the Enola Gay. We walk into a room, sometimes we're there for a very short time, but we have a massive impact. Like, that, you know, the Enola Gay, it's a terrible analogy. But what, it's is the, it, what is that? Well, that's the plane that dropped the, the bomb on Hiroshima. It's a terrible oh, thing to make. God, but my point is, short, short time, massive impact, terrible analogy. You know, maybe you should erase that so you don't get too many letters on your podcast. <laughs> but my point is we, we're big, booming and loud, and everyone goes, what the heck was that, you know? But... The thing is that I love about you, and I, I think this is where we match exactly the same, and it makes so much sense that you're doing this podcast. That's why I'm thrilled to be on it, is because the reality is you and I just love to laugh, but the thing that you and I also know is sometimes when you meet comedians, and it doesn't matter who, but quite often when you meet some comedians, they're actually quite dry. Like the, the comedy is their performance, um, but the personality is far less than the perception. And quite often I've always said the hardest person to get to laugh at the punchline of a joke is a comedian. Yep. It's like they actually oppose laughter, like sometimes, not all, but you meet them. But whereas you and I are the people that are happy to laugh along with at, you can have a go at me, I can have a go at you, but then you want to, <laughs> then I want to make you laugh and then I want to make you cry and then I want to have a go at you, but then I want to hug you. And you know, I think it is when this, when you match spirits, I mean, you know what I mean? You walk into a room and you go, oh, and within seconds of meeting you and even seeing you, like, I'm so not the heckler. Like the, you would be the only person I could imagine I'd be yelling stuff out at, which is well, because I'm I'm not that guy. I've never gone to a gig and heckled ever, but and I still remember that room. But we we were 
instantly giggling at each other. We were other bouncing and laughing. off each other. It was fun. But by the same token, Annette had said, have you met Tracy? Oh, my God, you two would get along. And, and you know, quite often people say that and you go, that doesn't mean it's going to work. Normally it means I'm going to hate them. When they tell yeah. me that, it's like, don't tell me I'm going to like them because I know that I won't. It's just it's always. Like, who ever dated the girl that their mum said, oh, my friend Barbara <laughs> has this daughter or this son? You go, that's going to be a terrible matchup if my mum thinks we'll get along. Yeah. And that's what it felt like. But with uh, no, your 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 giggle is infectious and your smile is adorable. And that's oh, why that's why we you, got Shane. along from get-go. Right back at you. Well, I wanted to talk about your family because I mean you you came from quite a big family, one of four, a mum and dad. Yeah. And and I <laughs> I want you to tell me about your dad and the cricket comedy nights that he used to run. He had a particularly um unusual outfit. That he wore one night. Oh God! Geez, you've got a. Where, where, you've done study, or you've got a memory like a. Elephant. A little bit of both. <laughs> you do. So, Dad used to. Dad never called himself a comedian because he had a job, but Dad would do these sportsman nights, like at the cricket club or the footy night, where they just push him up on stage, and he'd do forty-five or an hour. In fact, one time he got pushed on stage before Ron Blaskett and Jerry G, the puppet. Oh, God. And when Dad came came off, he said that's one of the best warm-ups for a crowd I've ever had, you know. But Dad wouldn't have anything rehearsed. He'd be he'd be drunk and just get pushed on stage. <laughs> but at one cricket event, he actually did do this whole I – was, I was just a kid. We went to the Meribyrnong Town Hall and, uh, and Dad came out on stage dressed as a pill, <laughs> as in like – like as in the pill that you swallow, and it was a whole thing about the, the contraceptive female pill. pill. Contraceptive pill. <laughs> he did this. He turned up on stage dressed as a pill and did this whole performance about being <laughs> Where, a pill. What was the you outfit? Know? What did he make the outfit from? Cardboard. But it, it, literally his head popped out the top, <laughs> his feet popped out the bottom, and he was a massive white pill. But I, I, I just – so, yeah, Dad, he never called himself a comedian, the same as he didn't call himself an actor, but – um, you know, and then, you know, when Kenny came out, he was up against Jeffrey Rush for, for you know, best supporting actor, you know. And he's, oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, it's it's funny. Dad was, you know, we got to watch him walk up on stage with courage and without fear and make a room laugh. In fact, uh, it was my favourite thing as a kid to watch Dad walk into a room and I've always said, you know, when different kids, if, if my dad was a mechanic, I guess I'd want to know how to fix a car like he could or if he was a painter. Well, actually, Dad was an amazing drawer, to be honest, so it's probably a bad analogy, but, you know, Footy players, sons and daughters, you know, want to maybe kick a ball or play sports or whatever. But my dad, what I most wanted to be like is my dad to walk into any room and if there was 100 strangers in there within 10 to 15 minutes, you know, 95% of that room were now his new best friend and they'd all be around him and he'd be entertaining and making them laugh and smile and he was interested in them but he was also more interested in making them smile or if not laugh, to be honest. And I... I love that, and he did it. Even did it at, at my stepmother's funeral. My mum's still with us, but I still remember at his when my parents separated. My dad met another woman, and they got they got married. And at her funeral, and you know, dad was devastated. Um, that at the wake, I still remember watching him walk around, making people laugh and smile at the wake. And I went, yeah, of course, he was heartbroken. He spent. You know, week, months and months and months. In fact, as he says, you never get over it. He said, you learn, you know, you, you run out of tears, but you never run out of the sorrow. But I still watched him walk around and entertain people at his wife's funeral. And he means it. He does it because it's what he loves to do. So if that was the one thing that made me go, I want to be that. I want to walk into a room and be the thing that smiles, the thing that laughs and and hopefully, you know, put a smile on someone's doll. And you and me were doing it when people weren't paying us and, and getting paid for it doesn't make it feel any better or any worse. 
But we were doing it before we got paid to do it and then we just wanted to make it a job so we didn't have to stop during the day. I wanted to do it between 9 to 5 as well. So that's how I got to where I am. You are doing it. I think it's amazing that you you chose to walk away from being an incredibly successful businessman running very big companies and, mm. and being responsible for hundreds of employees and you took that leap. Yeah, what was the turning point? When did you just say, I've, I've got to do this, it's now or never? Because from my point of view, I went into comedy because I couldn't get another job. I'd been sacked. I was I was a, a sales rep for a credit card company and I was really successful and um, and then the boss put the hard worm on me at drinks one night and I said no and he sacked me. I mean, that was, that's just how it was, you know, 30 years ago. And so it wasn't like I was leaving something to go into comedy. I couldn't get another job and I just thought, yeah, I might give it a go. I always wanted to act. I always wanted to entertain, and I did both. I was doing both and running Premiere back when, you know, the lighting company that went into AV and everything else. And I still do, between me and my wife, we've now got 13 businesses and companies, so I still run businesses. There's still something in me that loves, because I like producing films as well as acting in them. I like running businesses as well as, you know, working for them, but I enjoy the challenge of it, and I love you know, bringing an idea to fruition. But my brother was the one that said to me when we started doing Kenny. Kenny was a short film first, and oh, okay. um, and my brother said, "If you are the longer you get distracted, I was very busy. So you know, the world was lighting that I was in, and and sound and audio visual, but in particular, the biggest part of my world was lighting. I was the lighting designer, and you know, and, and very heavily involved in rock and roll and live events. And I did, you know, it's been well quoted. I did pyrotechnics for Guns and Roses and Bon Jovi when they come to Australia and all that kind of stuff. And my brother said, "You are you constantly get so distracted by by business." You're never going to make it work in entertainment. And it drove my brother mad and he kept saying to me, you just should be in front of the camera. You need to be on stage. You know, he'd come and watch. I had a band and I'd seen bands. He goes, all of it, you know, and I'd done amateur theatre. And, and the said, gang you, show, the gang show with yeah, the Yeah, the gang show, yeah. we did. I was at the Palais Theatre for 13 years, you know, on stage every year and loved it. But I did keep getting distracted by business. And he said, when are you going to stop? You need, you need to stop. And he told me he, he did something uh, himself once, which he I remember him talking to me about saying, so my brother was a very well-known editor, a great editor, had, editor, had done U2 film clips in excess, the list goes on, Farnham, you name an Australian band in the 80s. We used to play a drinking game on weekends. We'd watch Rage and every time my brother, a clip of my brother's came on, you had to scull a drink and you were smashed after an hour. So we're talking about Clayton here, your yeah, brother Clayton. Clayton. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And but at one point he wanted to stop being the editor and just do directing. But he found out he kept telling people he was a, he was now a director as well. And he did all the bad love stuff, the teen arena. List would go on, but they people kept saying, Yeah, great, but can I just get you to edit this clip? So he'd go back and edit a midnight oil clip and then Noise Works and Kate Sobrano. And then he'd go, No, I'm I'm directing now. And they'd go, Great, but can you edit this? Yeah. And he realized he was never going to be a director if he was an editor because they'll go, oh, the editor wants to have a go at directing. So he said I had to literally get to a point, even though he was doing great business and making an incredibly good income because he was so, you know, one of the go-to editors for music clips in this country and for TV commercials, big ones, Mercedes, Honda, Telstra, like, you know, the bigger ads back then when the budgets were enormous. So he just stopped editing. And then people would ring him up and say, oh, can you edit this video clip for this band. He'd say, no, I'm not editing anymore. I'm directing now. And he, he said, I had to say goodbye to the money and say no to the jobs. And then those people would hang up and go, oh, Clayton Jacobson's not editing anymore. He's directing now. 
And he said, but until you, until you make that cut, until you, you know, it's like a breakup. If someone says, look, let's just have a little break for a while, and you go, well, how does that work? That's not actually letting them know where they stand. He goes, so you've got to say, no, I'm, we're breaking up. And the old, it's not you, it's me. It's like, oh, no, it's you. So he's saying to them, <laughs> no, no, I'm not an editor. He, he made it clear. And so he said oh, he had to walk away from work and he found it terrifying. And then people rang up and said, well, actually, we'd love, we'd love you to direct that clip. And then he said, I then became the director. And he said, you're a lighting guy. You're, you're a guy that does lighting who entertains people. And he said, but you're not. You're not going to be an actor if you don't stop. So I actually did stop and started my own little like, business called SJ Entertainment. I printed my own notepads. And I remember the first day I just bought a unit and I was sitting there. I had my office set up and, you know, all my. it's like at school when you rule the margins before you yep. do the exam and you try and do way too many things and you should just be getting into answering the questions on the exam. I had business cards and headers done and designs and I sat at the desk and I was there on my own, sitting in my house, going, what do I do now? Oh. And I still I still remember the thing I had for corporate speaking, which was on the bottom of it that said, no job, uh, no, no small to job, which made me laugh. I made it a misprint. <laughs> no small to job, which I just, I don't know why I thought that was so amusing. And then at the bottom it said on the invoice, uh, and it said, you book, I come, you laugh, I leave, you pay, I smile. <laughs> That's fantastic. What's the age difference between you and Clayton? Seven years. And he's seven years older and I've morphed into him and now when we go out, people say, are you guys twins or who's the oldest? And I just find that insane that my seven-year-older brother, I mean, imagine me at 11 and he's 18 and driving and going out to pubs and got girlfriends and I'm an 11-year-old boy. Like he seems so much older. And now we go out to functions and people try and figure out who the oldest is. And he always says stuff like, guess. And I go, this is not a game. He's older by seven years. Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting because, I mean, I've spent time with both of you and I don't see, uh, uh, it's clear you're brothers, but uh, what the reason I asked you that was because just listening to the incredible support and belief that your brother had in you. Yeah. That must be so lovely. And because, I mean, I remember interviewing the two of you after Kenny came out when we um we did that corporate luncheon and 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 Clayton yeah. was talking about getting so sick of hearing Kenny in the editing suite with the sibilance and I wanted to ask you because my producer on for this podcast um, Daryl wanted to know when did you decide to give Kenny that sibilance when did that that thing come in was it was that was that always there? Was that well? Yeah. So there, what happened was Splashdown, who who the the film is sort of based around that company. I used to, when I did event management, so other than lighting, I did event management. They had a guy called Kevin who used to work there who had a list. The Kenny character is made up of quite a few people, and all the best parts of our uncles and our dad is an amalgamation of all of those. But you know, it was Clayton that thought, what a great way to view the world through the eyes of entertainment. Call it planners because or plumbers and 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 people that do portaloos because as we know like the melbourne cup you see people at their in in a very short stint of time as we all know at an event like that you see people at their best and then at their worst they turn oh, yeah. up like lady die mm. and they leave like the scarecrow at a wizard of Oz. <laughs> right and you just know it all falls apart like you know they turn up like literally looking the best i've ever looked and wanting everyone to say, aren't they amazing? And they leave hanging onto their shoes and the dress up over their head and the guys have fallen sideways. And Plato's thought it was just a great way to view the human race through events because people are at a heightened version of themselves. 
or an altered version. And quite often, you know, bigger music events, it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's all sorts of things, or just people at, at their most excited and then for therefore probably a little bit out of sorts. And also the thing about that he found was amazing about the portaloo people, the people who do event toilets, is they're invisible, is because no yeah. one wants to look at those people. And that's what he said. There's, you know, they are literally invisible to the people. They look through and look past. But Play said, here's the thing. Because um, people often said, why? The other question was, you said, when did it first decide? But other ones, people are like, why do we choose the list? And I've always said, it's actually a question everyone listening to this podcast ha- has to ask themselves because for some reason, and it's something Clay figured out. Um, first, I should say, Clay said, look, we've got to be honest, you know, I'm a bigger guy, had a goatee back then, still got a beard. I had three earrings, tattoo on my right shoulder in overalls, I look like a great big thug. And he said, so there's, there's nothing endearing about the look of me. <laughs> so <laughs> you love you know. your brother's honesty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he, uh, you know, you know, we've always said we've got a face like a drop pie. So <laughs> what? and what he said was when you hear someone talk with a lisp, for some reason it's endearing. And that's why yep. I say that listeners have to kind of ask themselves, I wonder why that is. So if I say to you, um, especially as a, a, a tradie as I was playing, I mean, it is a trade, or plumbing's a trade, obviously. Uh, if I said to you, uh, look, if someone said the toilet's not working in there or where are the toilets, you look, no worries. If you just go down there to the left, uh, third door on the right, that, that's not endearing. It's just instructions. But when it wouldn't even matter if you got Kenny, you asked Kenny to go and get the shopping. If you said, can you go and get some milk and some bread or where are you off to? And he wanted to tell you he was just going to the shops. If I said, I'm just going to go and get some eggs, some milk and bread, you go, okay, no worries, great. But Kenny would probably say, oh, look, I'm just going down the shop. I've uh, got to get some of the, uh, a bit of the cow juice there and a couple of chook nuggets. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'll grab, uh, I'll grab some crusty and uh, and I'll get back and we'll have ourselves some breakfast. Huh? What do you say? Now, also, my uncles used to talk in rhythms, and that's what Kenny does. If people want to know what it is, yes, I mm. do the lisp, which makes him endearing. He's no longer a threat. As soon as people see him on the screen, he was going to be working with toilets and excrement. It was already going to be an uncomfortable subject matter. But if you see this big guy who has a heart of gold oh, and yeah. he's endearing, then immediately you've kind of yeah, you've kind of pulled a trick on your audience because you've made them like him and they don't even know why. Um, and then all you have to do after that is let him talk in a song. But so Teddy talks with a rhythm. And you don't really notice it until I point it out. That if, if he does, if he was to count to ten, it would be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Uh, so he and that because that's how my uncles my uncles had a rhythm. It's a cadence. So how's school for you, son? What's been going on with you this week? And they had this beautiful melody. So we plugged them all together, and guess what? People liked him, and so did we. You know, the funny part is, everyone will deny the fact that they look at their poo, but everyone does. The ancient Greeks, cop this one, the ancient Greeks, they used to use poo, like, you know, back in, I mean, talking 2,000 years ago, when Christ was alive, um, they used to look at their poo and all people's poo to forecast the future. Mind you, if they'd seen some of the poo I've seen at some of the festivals, the future looks pretty bleak, but they used to use it to forecast the future back 2,000 years ago. I mean, it was incredibly, an incredibly successful film and I, I take my hat off to you because I know that you ended up paying all the extras uh, when, yeah. when the film was successful. You paid, you paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars to the extras because you could and most people wouldn't know that and I think that's extraordinary that you did that. And, the, the, and the reason that was kind of a bit weird, if you will, is because they'd all signed release forms to say they wouldn't 
there was because we had no money when we made of it. Of course. So yeah. everyone had signed a release form. But yeah, we got to the end and Clay said we're gonna now that it's made money, we're gonna go back and pay them all. And it didn't mean they got they didn't make fortunes, but they got paid but for their hours they worked because unheard of. Well, we just you know, Clay said it's the right thing to do. And and we asked them to sign that release form because we didn't have the money to pay for them. But when when you did have the money, you go, Well, let's let's go back retrospectively and do what we should have done if which we would have if we'd have had the money at the start, you know. Yeah, but I mean that's it's called integrity, Shane Jacobson. And the other thing I love I was on a standing on a balcony at a, in a service department, and um, we were both appearing at an event. I won't tell you what it was. And I asked you if you would do ten minutes uh, as Kenny as part of this thing, and you didn't want to, for lots of reasons. And then at the end, you said, "I'll do it for you, Trace. I'll do it for you." And you came out and you did ten minutes. But you said to me at the time, "I'm not going to be wheeling at Kenny." In 10 years' time, no. I'm going to retire him. I've seen other people do that with characters and for the next 10 years, all they do is, and you know, I won't name a character, but there's there are some people who have done that. And you made that decision to shut the door on Kenny yeah. and then you went on and you did Guys and Dolls and you won the Helpman Award for Nicely Nicely Johnson. I saw you in that show. It was when you sang Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat. I mean, you tore the place. I mean, it's it's a showstopper. But yeah, you were so, so good in it and it was so wonderful that you made a decision to do something as far away from Kenny. You went and did a musical. And it yeah. was it was fantastic, Shane. Because it was mate, because it was an event that you got to play in the sandpit with all the things that you like to play with that you you could move on from Kenny, but you haven't yeah, well, kept, you haven't kept wheeling him out because you said I never will, and I think that's really commendable because it's t- tempting. Thank you. Well, we did do a thing called Kenny's World. We did a TV series. Everyone wanted us to do a sequel, and you know it's dangerous territory. And, and we've always said you don't do that in life. Oh, your your grandmother seems so great. Let's kill her and get another one and see if you can make a grandmother as good as that one. You go no. How about let's just respect grandma. Let's stay with her. You know. Yeah. So weird analogy, but it's kind of like you know we we didn't want to destroy that, but. We, we, there were questions that people wanted answered, like does he meet, does he get the airline hostess? And for those who haven't seen it, you know, there's a love interest in Yvonne Bibra who, who plays Jackie. So we actually we actually did a TV series called Kenny's World where we took him around the world. And you can't do a sequel to Kenny in a way because the thing was people thought it was a, a documentary because it was a mockumentary. That's right. And the joy of it was meeting him. That, yeah. Like, you know, even Brian Brown rang so furious at my brother going, I can't believe he's not real. I spent 30 minutes <laughs> thinking the, the world was a better place with him in it and then I realised it was a movie, you bastards. And now and now you've got a lovely friendship with Brian Brown. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, he's anyone that's ever been near him wants him as his best friend. He's yeah. just he's about the most normal human that I've ever met. And he just happens to be internationally famous. But someone should tell him it's like Guy Pierce. These are the people that don't know they're famous. It's like, has someone told them how big they are? Oh, Guy Pierce. We could talk about him for an hour. What an amazing human. I know, he's gorgeous. Yeah. Well, yeah. so we we um we did that Kenny's World and I did a few, but then the request kept coming in. And so yeah, we actually did uh, a 10 year I, I did 10 years. It's funny, I I didn't even know we'd had that chat, but we did 10 years without him being seen or heard and everyone said, you know, what about Kenny? We we always love talking about Kenny because we love the film. I just don't wheel him out. And I we've said that Kenny won't answer my calls because the only person Kenny ever didn't like was me because he always said I, the only person he ever spoke ill of was me. And Kenny, because <laughs> he always said there's this tosser running around called Shane Jacobson who's <laughs> claiming all of his work. <laughs> and he said, I never saw Shane Jacobson. Kenny used to say, I never saw that idiot on set once. <laughs> <laughs> so the only person Kenny doesn't like is me, believe it or not. So, and I used to rubbish myself in press with, when I was playing Kenny. But we did, we brought him out of retirement, which we said we'd do 10 years. And a few years ago, 
well, five years ago, it was the 10th anniversary of Kenny. It was the 20th anniversary of Shine and it was the 30th anniversary of Crocodile Dundee. So um, me, Jeffrey Rush and Paul Hogan, did, did, we were at the Actor Awards together and we did some press together and some photos together. And I presented an award as Shane Jacobson at the start of the night or made a speech of some kind and then went backstage, shaved my beard back into a goatee, put on the Kenny gear and came out and presented an award as Kenny. And we did it because it was the 10th anniversary Mm. to celebrate it. And then he's not been out again. I put the overalls back in the cupboard and shut the door. And so I did it five years ago. So we reckon, me and Clay reckon about every 10 seems about right how did it feel to put his overalls back on and come out again as Kenny and to shave his shave your beard backstage? That's brave. Back to a goatee, yeah. Yeah. Because I haven't had a goatee since Kenny either. Uh, only because I probably look like um, some kind of half-baked biker now if I do it. <laughs> <laughs> it, felt, it felt great because the, the, he's so much fun to play. It sounds like such a tosser actor thing to say, but he's so much fun to play. I'll tell you the greatest thing, that one of the greatest things, gosh, it's hard to put them in order, but when we did the world tour with for Kenny's World. We travelled around 14 countries, 27 cities, 100 locations. Anyway, it was crazy. We travelled everywhere. But we went to India where there's no no way anyone there knew who Kenny was and I was dressed as Kenny and I walk, we're in a, a very poor district, the Elwar district in, in India, and school kids, there was all these kids there. And Kenny was walking down the street and, yes, we had a camera crew with us. Kenny was doing what, what he would do, which is, hello, kids, how you doing? And before you knew it, Clay's got a photo of like about 80 kids around me um, with me talking to them and all their faces lit up. And he said, we've realised that, you know, Kenny's kind of like the real, the human Humphrey there. Yes. What a great analogy. Very much so. But wearing pants. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, without without running around naked with a waistcoat. Yeah, uh, yeah, which was, I always thought was a bit creepy. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit, wasn't it? Mm. But yeah, and Clay said, "Isn't it funny? You know, we realised that he's like a human Humphrey Bear, and like he was even connecting." And so, but again, it's that big happy face. It's it's what we love about Santa. You know, it's what we love about those. You know, the big uncle, the big auntie. You know, I know you don't have to be big to be lovable, but there is something about you know. There's a reason if Santa was a, a stick figure, I don't think you'd kind of want to cuddle him as much. That's you'd love right. what he does and you'd think he was a but there's that big cuddly factor. It's just it's just true. You know, we're talking about laughaholics here and we could talk for hours, you and me. But was there was there a favorite TV character that you had as a toy? Was there some show that you came home to watch that you just loved because it was hilarious? I mean, for me it was like the Adams family. Yeah, well the favorite comfort thing for me, I was in the western suburbs, so it was a handgun. Um <laughs> And then after that, it was a Swiss Army knife, but that was welcome to the West. And also, you were a scout. You were a scout. Well, we're in a pretty poor area. And can I just say congratulations, by the way, on being Victoria's number one scout? Because that's huge. That is really huge. Good on you. Chief scout of Victoria. Yeah, well, scouts, you know, I I owe scouts so much for getting me to where I am and, and kind of making, you know, in many ways, of course, my parents as well. And those around me that had an influence on me because they loved me enough for me to pay attention to what they were saying. But scouting gave me great skill sets, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, as a kid, characters were um, – the funny part was I've got a passion for cars. You can see in the background here I've got model cars. And, I know. Uh, and cars is a big part of my world. I've, you know, hosted Top Gear and I've got a car, small car collection and all that kind of stuff. And a Batmobile behind you. And that's a that's a one that that's bigger than it looks. It's actually, believe, you know, it's about a metre long, that thing. And can you go and get it? Can you go and grab it? Well, it's so big, though. You'll realise how big it is if I, like, it's that big. Oh, my God, it's huge. Like, it is enormous. Like, it's. Is it heavy? Yeah, it's, it's big. Like, if I pick it up, yeah, here we go. It's make good radio, but it's enormous. Oh, it's huge. 
That's the thing with Zoom. You can't see things, how big things no, are. No, we can describe it. It's like a, it's a better meter long or a touch more. For me, the first heroes that I, I loved from films or TV shows were actually not covered in skin. They were covered in metal. It was like the the Batmobile, you know, and then, you know, when Mad Max came out, it was the XB Coupe and BJ, the truck out of BJ McCain's yeah. best friend Bear, the motorcycles out of chips. I'd have, so I oh, had chips. lots of <laughs> California Highway Patrol. Remember that? Yeah. So all of those shows, it was funny. I was, I was so drawn to, so the toys I still have here um, in the house, I, I have a model of all my favourite, the Dukes of Hazard's car, um, the Shelby Cobra out of out of Gumball Rally. So I, Cannibal Run. So I, I actually, believe it or not, it's crazy. I actually buy the cars from it. But the shows that I used to watch before all that, I mean, I was I was of that era where I, you know, you raced home for Gilligan's Island. You know? Oh, Gilligan! I used to love Gilligan's Island. I watched an episode of it literally two days ago because it was on Foxtel or something. Oh. And Thurston, honey, darling. And I think you said something like. <laughs> Mr. Howell, who was Mr. Magoo. Yeah, it was Mr. Magoo. Yeah, Mr. Magoo. Yeah, darling, can you old son of a gun. Wasn't he great? Oh, fantastic. But I can't remember one of his, my favourite lines was, oh, darling, I've lost one of the sets of keys to one of our houses in Maui in the key trunk. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this concept that they had so many houses, they had a trunk. Just for the keys. With keys, and he said, "I've lost one of the, I've lost the set of keys to one of our houses in Maui in the key trunk." And like you're going, how many houses? So funny. I loved it, and you know, I always wanted to know how Ginger had so many different outfits when they only went out for a three hour tour, and how, yeah. and how her hair always looked fantastic, and was. Was the professor really doing it with Mary Ann? Because I think they were. None of us knew to ask these questions. No, we at didn't. That age. No. And there's so many things. Isn't it funny? We've been with our kids during lockdown. We've done these things. We do um, Friday night classics. We go back and watch '80s films and everything else. Oh, great! Now, and you just look back through their eyes, and it's so funny having it thrown in your face by your children because it turns out they're right. And what I love about it, me and my wife Felicity or Fliss. Fliss and I quite often think, I think we've done an okay job of raising our kids because they're spotting the errors in in the plots of movies. Oh, and what I, what I mean by that is the moral dilemmas. So, you know, when you start to describe, you know, at some point, live, oh, should we watch Pretty Woman? No, that's not appropriate. It's a great film, though. What a great love story. And then, oh, what's this one about? I mean, you try and say to your daughter, well, it's about a businessman who picks up a prostitute and takes her back and enjoys his time with her so much he pays her enough to stay in the hotel for five days, uh, sends her off to get some dresses so he can put her on parade, and then eventually they fall in love. And she's like, okay, that sounds disgusting. And you go, oh, actually it is. It is. It's really <laughs> terrible. <laughs> so we've, we've just started watching some of these films and they are picking all the moral flaws in it where you're going, all right, this, this sounds terrible. There's one we watched the other day. Um, where uh, how many films did it happen in the eighties where you see sexual tension between two young you know young couple boy and a girl they really like each other they're at a party and you the audience know oh come on get together we you're supposed to be together you should be together and they drink too much and before and they're all you know, halfway through the film they they always keep missing the opportunity to kiss and they're always moments away but they get distracted by a phone call or a friend or whatever and then there's that bit where they get drunk everything goes dark and then. They wake up in the morning and look at each other and they're in bed together and they go, oh, and they realise they've slept together, right? Now, that just happens so often, right? Now, my wife is a lawyer and my daughter's watching a show and that happened and it seems so innocent and my daughter looked at us and said, um, isn't that rape? And we went, oh, my God, 
Yes, yes, darling. Yes, it is. You're right. She's like, well, why, why, why is this a love story? That's a terrible story. It, isn't it amazing to be watching things with your children and getting that? Oh, into, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, we're, we're having to be very cautious about what we show our kids now because we keep saying it's hilarious, it's lovely. What a love story. Have you shown them any Paul Hogan? Because I know how close you are to Paul and I know you grew up watching him and yeah. my, my small claim to fame is I was a door bitch in Strange Bedfellows with Paul. <laughs> yes, you were. You and I, were. He's such a lovely, lovely, lovely man. And I wanted to say that my friend Denise, who lives in Perth, she um, I was talking to her today and she said, could you tell Shane that, the show that he did with Paul. where when Charlie and Boots? No, it wasn't Charlie and Boots. No, it was when Paul was doing um, stand-up and you did, oh, you, and you, yeah. you followed him around and it was so beautiful. I mean, I remember the thing for me was watching you watching Paul from side of stage. Oh, and, I and, loved and it. I know you loved it and it was so gorgeous. It. And so did you meet him through Charlie and Boots? Because I, I loved yeah. that beautiful Yeah, movie. so, so the, that, that, that thing was a, it was a doco on Paul's life. It was called Hanging yeah. with Hose. It was gorgeous, gorgeous. Yeah, so we met, I had a manager at the time and she'd worked with Paul Another mutual friend, Dean Murphy, who directed Strange Bedfellows that you were in. The oh, director he did of that. too, yes. Paul and me love working with Dean. In fact, Dean Paul pretty much only works with Dean Murphy now because Dean's so laid back and so country, Paul loves it. When Dean yells cut when we're doing stuff together, most people go, wonderful, fantastic, loved it, let's do another one. And you think, okay, so they didn't mean it because if they thought it was fantastic, you wouldn't be going again. That's right. But, you know, you do a retake. But we'd finish a take and Dana would go, cut, and uh, and we'd go, how was that? And he'd go, oh, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> like it's, he's, so, he's so dry that Paul and I love it. Like he's, he's, his own, he's his own comedy show when you're being directed by him. But, yeah, we met, we were in L.A., myself and my brother in L.A., you know, we'd love to have met Paul and he found out we were in town and, uh, you know, the mutual friend said, look, did you want to meet the boys? And Paul said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to meet him. Actually, I love the film. Bloody great film. Kenny, you'd love to meet him. He said, just do me one favour, tell me. They're not they're not those kind of film school wankers, are they? <laughs> he, just, <laughs> he didn't want us to be movie types that say, yeah, it's all about the structure. And, and don't get me wrong, you, you need that. And of course. I think directors are in, incredibly talented minds that visualise a whole story before, you know, sometimes. But that's not you and Clay. You, you guys you guys are intuitives. You are intuitives. Yeah. Well, Clay actually is a, he's a creative genius, but they said, no, no they're, they're pretty normal blokes from the West. He said, oh, great. So we actually met, I met him in Santa Barbara and we hung out and, you know, I was, I was you know, blown away. I'm having a chat with Paul Hogan in, in America, you know, and, I mean, he was a hero, still is. Yep. And then after that, Dean Murphy, who had directed him before, well, one day I got a phone call and he said, I'm wanting to write a film and I'm just wanting to know if you would want to be in it with you and Paul Hogan. And I said, I assume I'm the second call. Because <laughs> I don't think I don't think he rings Paul and says, Would you like to work with Shane Jacobson? <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah, he said, I'm thinking about you and Shane together. It would be so great to put you together. And he said, Would you would you be would you be interested? And, and Paul said, Yeah, I'd love to do that. He's, you know, we got along really well. And, you know, thank goodness he he didn't mind what I what I was doing on screen, you know, as far as my work. So yeah, they wrote that script, um, Charlie and Boots, and then we spent that time together, which was just pure joy. He says one of his favourite movie experiences because we filmed it in order and we drove from the bottom of Australia to all the way to the top of Australia on a road trip with a great crew. And, and so, yeah, we've, we've been mates ever since and done a lot of stuff together. And, you know, I, I always say it, he hates it. Paul hates compliments. He doesn't, he doesn't have anywhere to park compliments. So 
you know, whenever I talk about him, I always say, yeah, we're mates, but I'm first and foremost forever his fan. And when I say it, he always hits me on the arm and says, don't do that, you know. There's no need to say, oh, that rubbish, you know. That's very him, isn't it? Yeah, he just wants to, he just wants to be, he thinks it's, that I should just be saying we're mates, but he can't accept that there's part of me, as I'm sure everyone can understand, you know, when you've had someone at the top of a tree like he was for so long where everything he was doing, you just went, oh, I, I want to be that. I wish I could be that funny and, you know, and he did, he, and he did so many good things that people Shane, don't know about. Shane, you are that funny. You are so funny. Well, we're, but I'm not. I'm not Paul. I'm not. I mean, no, but gosh, you're not I haven't, Paul. I haven't made the most successful independent film on the planet's history. I know. Isn't that amazing? Dundee I mean, still is. Dundee still is. It's just fantastic, isn't it? It was such, mm. and it still holds up. You know. I yeah. Mean, you watch it and go. You know, that's a knife. I mean, seriously, it's just. It was such. It was so refreshing, wasn't it? Uh, look, oh, gosh, wasn't it? When it came out in cinemas and the soundtrack and yeah. dum, 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 dum. I mean, you could, you know, I could hum the whole soundtrack. But I'll tell you, I've, look, I've told this story quite a few times, but it is my favourite memory. One I get asked about Paul all the time. But there is one moment in our in our history, and it was on that film, Charlie and Boots. That is my favourite memory. And if I live to be seven hundred, it will still be my favourite memory of me and Paul together, where I just thought it couldn't get more Australian than this. We are filming in Echuca in the country, you know, Victorian regional town of Echuca. River town. And we are in, in a Kingswood, a Holden Kingswood, which I now own and I had it restored and it lives at the Holden Museum in Echuca. Oh. But it's still mine. But we were doing this scene where we had, right at the end of the day, we had one shot to do of just the car coming down the street at sundown, right? And sun was going down quick and it's all about the available light. And so they have this long lens, this 100mm lens, and they've got it set up right right down there, way down the end of this main road. And we have to drive the car way up the end of this long road and then do a U-turn right at the end and then come back towards the camera. And it's a really long shot. They want to be able to pick any point in the edit but they don't know whether they're going to want it all the way down the end or part way. So drive the whole road. And it's yep. a long road, main road. So we we head off. And so there's no camera crew around us because they want a shot of it coming down the road just with no, you know, no equipment in the background. So it's us in a Kingswood in a Chuga, right? Yeah. And we go head off. And there's only at that time, I reckon there's only about four sets of lights in a Chuga, and we caught one of them. And we're <laughs> sitting at a set of lights, right? And a car pulls up beside us. Because right? <laughs> it's the main road, yeah. a car pulls up beside us with an old couple in it, and I've always, and like I said, I've told this story many times. <laughs> I don't know what her name was, but the husband's name was Doug. But she yelled it, and what happened was she pulled up at the set of lights, and we looked across as you do in a country town. You don't do it in the city, no. but now in country town, especially when there's not many people around, you kind of look across and give them a bit of a nod. And me and Paul looked across and gave them a nod, and she nodded back politely, and then she looked forward, and then there was that moment where her eyes and her brain had a little chat about what they just saw. Yes, and she slowly craned her head back around, and whilst looking at us, yelled at her husband, Doug. Doug, and he said, what? And he must have been deaf or they argue like, what? And she said, bloody crocodile Dundee and Kenny are in the car next to us, right? <laughs> and, and she and she says, as she's saying this, he's going, what are you talking about? And the lights go green and on the two-way radio they're going, guys, hurry up, hurry up, we're running out of light. So we had to leave before old Doug got to see us and, as we were driving off, she would have been pointing at the back of her kingwood going, that was Crocodile Dundee and Kenny in the car. And he would have just said, Maud, her name would have been Maud, Maud, you've lost your mind. And we, me and Paul, like, couldn't, like, just couldn't stop. So the, not so much laughing as just smiling and giggling going, 
how great will it be when the film comes out and we always spoke about, we've spoke about it so much that we were more excited for Dear Old Maud, if that was her name, that at some point that film would come out and there would be us driving down the street in a chuka in that Kingswood when she can go, I bloody told you. <laughs> and I don't know why I think she would talk like Michael Caine. Why do I just do Michael Caine for? <laughs> You know what? I'm if you won't say, believe, it's my okay. Look, I've, we could talk all day, and I know we're going to yeah. we're, we're going to do this again. I know that we're yeah. going to do this again. But so I want to ask you about your mum, your beautiful yeah. mum Jill, because I know she's living with Parkinson's. In fact, before 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 I, I ask you to tell me a story about her, I want to tell you something about my dad because he's not here anymore. And I used to go and pick him up once a week, and I'd take him to the supermarket because that's what he liked to do. He had cancer, and he he you know he. It was terminal. But his idea was was a fun, was going to Bilo in Mornington on a Wednesday afternoon. And he, I lost him in the supermarket. I couldn't find him. And um, I went out the front. He was sitting on one of those, you know, those wooden chairs that they had for the elderly people. He was sitting there with his cane. He had a cane. My dad was six foot five, six foot six. Oh my goodness! So anyway, Dad's sitting on this on this um, seat, right? And I, I said, Dad, Dad, and I found him. And I went, I got up to him, and he starts stomping out of the the supermarket. And I said, What's the matter with you? And he said, I'm not happy. I said, Why? He said, Do you see that fella sitting on the chair? And I said, Yeah. And he said, I'm sitting there. Minding my own business, he comes up to me. He said, he goes, he looks at me, he goes, G'day. And my dad said, Afternoon. And he said, Parkinson's? And dad said, No, Bartram. And got off and walked away. (laughs) 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 And that was. And I'm still laughing about it because it was just, oh. it was so typical. But I want you to tell me the story of Jill and the Morris and the donuts on the Oval. Oh, gosh. You've been through my, one of my books or something to know this. Yeah, mum, mum has got Parkinson's. As she says, I've got Parkinson's. Is Parkinson's. It hasn't got me. She says incredibly brave stuff that, that makes me, reminds me, you know, I don't need to be reminded of how tough she is and how amazing she is, you know. You know, I've always known women are pretty much tougher than most blokes and then you've got, you know, mums who are even tougher again and then the older they get and you look at what they existed through. I mean, let's not forget our parents' generation went through a depression, which they called the Great Depression. Yeah. I mean, that's very optimistic because I've heard about it. It sounded <laughs> shit ass. We're not calling this the Great COVID. No, we are not. <laughs> the Great COVID. Like, we're all talking about, oh, you know, and I keep laughing about the fact, sorry to get distracted, I'll answer your question in a minute. I just love the fact that everyone keeps saying we're all in this together. I'm like, I just don't think they would say that in prison. It's all right. We're all in here together. Oh, well, that's made it better, Nathan. And, like, I'm like on the Titanic, did anyone yell that shit out? It's okay. No. We're all on this thing together. Oh, thanks, Doug. Wonderful. How does it make it better? No one says that when a fire's coming over the hill. What is Why we have chosen we're all in this together. I get what it's supposed to mean, but it's such it's an so annoying. battle. I know, and I get it because it's such an independent battle for all of us. Everyone battles their own demons and battles the lockdown and so you come out and you go back in and then someone else is out and someone else is in and you may want to go to a gym and other people don't even care about a gym but they want to go to, you know, I've had to bury a mate during COVID and we couldn't get a mate. Like there's all those things. Mm. But whenever they go, it's all right, we're all this together, it's like, I don't want to hear. <laughs> when my mum got Parkinson's, I'll loop back. They didn't say, oh, it's okay. You're now in with a whole heap of other people with Parkinson's. It's She'd be terrible. like, I don't want to join this club. It's a terrible illness, isn't it? Terrible. 
Look, it is. It's unfortunate. I've lost two uncles to it. So um, unfortunately, we've seen it. We've seen it do its thing before, and, and unfortunately, you know, it, it, it does it fairly well. But you know, there are advancements being made. But you know, you, you'd love them to be able to click a finger and turn it off. But that's that's not reality. But she's still really well. She's actually she's had it for over eighteen years now, and she's still able wow. to get around. Now she's un- is she unsteady on her feet? Yes. And does she have falls? Yes. She's still able to talk to my kids and cuddle the kids and tell me she loves me and tell them she loves them and she's got ears that work so she can Aww. hear them telling her they love her and they're all the important bits here. Yeah? So, um, and she's still got a memory and she's still got her eyesight and all these things we can be thankful for because so many people don't have those. So, but, yeah, she's, I mean, my mum was a religious instructions teacher, so she's not a wild unit. She was a lot of fun and a great sense of humour. But she was a religious and still has a faith, you know, she still has religion. And my point is pretty normal, you know, middle-of-the-road mum, if you will. And we had this old Pooh Brown Morris. If I rode to school every day, but every now and then, I don't know, if if the lightning was striking the ground every three metres and every three minutes and, you know, the skies had opened up and there was some guy with a long beard dressed in calico building a, a building an enormous boat with one of each animal <laughs> on it, she might drive you to school. <laughs> like until she saw Noah swimming, swimming a hammer, she go, all right, that looks a bit shit to ride to school in because I had to ride like nearly 10K or something, whatever it yeah. was, whatever the distance would have been. And so every now and then we'd get a drive and it was only in the first the early years of school. And as you know, when you first go to high school, you know, you're working pretty hard to try and establish who you are at that school and hierarchy and, you know, where you fit in and, you know, kind of find a personality that might fit your face. But you were lucky because Clayton would have been at that school, so you had your big brother. Yeah, but he was there like so many years ahead of me. Oh, of course. He, he was already gone, you know, and he's the, the teachers just knew he was incredibly good at art and said to me, are you as good as your brother at art? as your brother at art? No. I said, no. And then they just lost complete interest in me and said, well, you'd probably just be a yobber. <laughs> like anyone that had more than three teeth at our school was a tourist. It was pretty rough. <laughs> and so anyway, we the mum goes I am goes wetting to, my pants here, James. <laughs> so we, we're driving and mum sees this road. So we went to Nidri Technical School and it was right on the side of this hill where and we actually had like two or three ovals and mum saw this side road that she'd never noticed because, you know, she, she probably hadn't driven there for like a few months because, you know, it had only been raining a metre to a metre and a half a day, which wasn't <laughs> enough. She went, she said, where does that lead to? As we're driving, that's how slow the Morris went. You could have a conversation going past the <laughs> street and it could last three minutes until it had got to the other side of the street. <laughs> but she said, where does that go? She noticed that head and we said, that leads to another oval. She said, does it? I didn't even know you had an oval down there. And she turned into that street. We said, what are you doing? She said, I want to see the oval. And when we got to where the oval was, the two gates were open. You know, a kid had probably cut the padlock off. I mean, they <laughs> they cut everything over there. I mean, they hey, cut- I'm from Danny Nong. I can relate. Yeah, well, you know what it's like. I mean, yeah. you know, they were poor areas and as my dad used to joke, you know, they were so poor growing up he couldn't even afford to pay attention at school. <laughs> <laughs> so sure enough, the gates are swung open uh, and, um, yeah, Mum just started driving onto the oval. We went, Mum, what are you doing? She said, I want to go on the oval. I haven't seen this oval. And then went out there and then started driving in circles and then kind of went, oh, this is a bit of fun because a bit wet and, uh, and then kind of kept doing it for a bit. And next thing you know, we're out in the Oval doing donuts in the Morris with Mum and then she drove <laughs> off the Oval and then dropped us off to school and it was about the coolest thing Mum could ever have done. Every now and then people go, there was apparently a car doing donuts on the Oval this morning. They went, yeah, that's Shane's Mum. Fantastic. <laughs> it's instant cred. Yeah, but in a poo brown Morris. Yeah. Front-wheel dri- front drive. doesn't look anywhere near as exciting when a front-wheel drive drive car is doing donuts because it's not actually a donut. They're just really annoying little circles. <laughs> If it is a donut, it's without sugar. 
you know what, Shane, now, but this qualifies you as a bona fide laughaholic. Because yes, you, oh, you, does you've it? Got, you, well, you've got the pedigree. You've got your dad, Ron, dressed up as a contraceptive pill and mum driving around a poo, ba- a poo brand Morris doing donuts on the high school oval. It doesn't get better than that, really. No. Nah. You know, comedy it, was writing itself. It really, it really was. I can't thank you enough for talking to me today, Shane. And I'm, seriously, I, I had a little bit of weed did come out. I have cried so much and I've had to keep blowing my nose because I keep laughing. And I'm just, uh, I'm so happy to see you and I'm so happy that everything is going so well for you. And yeah, thank you. It's, it's, just, it's just great. And your kids are so lucky to have such a great dad and such a great mum, you know, in a world where everything's upside down mm. and you've got to really know your kids and, yeah. and you spend 18 months laughing with them. I mean, they'll look back on that time and just go, remember COVID, but we got to do this and we stayed in our jammies all day and we've got to look on the bright side. You are such a shiny, happy, gorgeous, wonderful person, Shane Jacobson. I'm really happy to have spoken to you today. It's great to see you again. Mate, it's my absolute pleasure. You thanked me, but friends don't have to thank each other for catching up. That's 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 not a thing. And, mate, you are right. We have got a chance to spend time together. In fact, we've, we've had so much time together, I've actually memorised their names. <laughs> so, <laughs> And I'm going to finish by saying the one thing we've got to tell everyone is that they can't tax you for laughing. It's the one thing. You can't double park a laugh. You can't. <laughs> OD on laughter. You can't have stolen a laugh. Well, you can if you're in entertainment, but it's not real. And, you know, when someone goes, I tried to tell a joke and, oh, it just died. It doesn't die. It's just a joke that doesn't go well. There's nothing wrong with a dad joke. You can't walk into your kids and go, okay, there's this nun and a prostitute. You can't do that. That's why dad jokes exist. Just joke again. And laughter is the best medicine. Unless you are listening to this and you're really sick, then medicine is still the best medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Love knowing you. Mwah. Mwah. As we all know, podcasts are free to listen to, but they are certainly not free to create. The following extraordinary people have contributed their amazing talents to create Laughaholics, and I wholeheartedly recommend their businesses. Laughaholics audio production, editing and imaging, brilliantly executed by Daryl Misson. The Laughaholics logo was created by Rick Plumridge at Ricochet Graphics. The Laughaholics show theme was lovingly composed by Steve the Bastard, and for more information on the Laughaholics experience as a professional development tool, please go to tracybartram.com.au, where you'll see my new website. Thank you so much to NME Digital for their amazing work. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Laughaholics. Celebrating laughter. 